Hello, and welcome to another Emith Your Business podcast. My name is Wendy Vinson, and I am excited today to introduce you to our friend Nina Kaufman. We invited Nina to join us today to demystify legal mumbo jumbo to help you save time, money, and aggravation. She's also an award winning attorney, speaker, and columnist, blogger for Entrepreneur Magazine Online. We were first introduced to Nina last year when she mentioned Emith in one of her Entrepreneur Magazine online articles, and she's subsequently written several articles for the Emith blog, and today we've asked her to discuss the three questions she hears the most often from her entrepreneur and small business owner clients. Welcome, Nina. Thank you, Wendy. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, it's, uh, we, uh, we're so happy to spend a little time with you. So uh, you have three most common questions that you hear all the time from entrepreneurs and business owners, and since our time is short, let me dive right in and start with the first one. Uh, the first question that you get is, can I use contracts or anything else for that matter that I see on the internet? What's uh, your response? You know, and my response is, if I had a nickel for every time I was asked these questions, I'd be in Bora Bora for this call. Nice. <laughs> um, when I'm asked, can I use contracts or anything else that I see on the internet, um, I, I like to ask people, you know, did, did you have siblings or did you play in the playground as a kid? Because if you think about it, I mean, for those of us who used to play in a sandbox when it was safe to play in a sandbox, <laughs> uh, our mothers would always look after us and make sure that we weren't grabbing other people's toys because it's not nice. You don't just take little Stacy's doll or you don't take little Danny's truck. You ask permission. And it's the same thing on the Internet. We're all playing in cyberspace, but we have to realize that if we didn't bring it into the sandbox, it's not necessarily ours to take. And that ties back in with certain copyright principles that whoever creates it, for the most part, owns it and has the right to decide how it's used. Mm -hmm. So the same way you, you don't just take little Danny's Tonka toy truck or whatever it is and start playing around with it, um, it's always better to ask permission because you may be taking something that belongs to someone else. And it's tempting because it's fair and it's free and it's so easy to cut and paste. <laughs> it is. Um, but... It's a good rule of thumb to say, as I said, if, if you didn't put it there, then it's not necessarily yours. And so uh, what are the rules for getting permission? Well, rules for getting permission are you ask. Now, usually if it's, if it's a blog post, for example, it's very easy to figure out who the publisher is. Um, you send an email and say, this is really great. Do I have your permission to use it or part of it? Um, there are some guidelines. I know a lot of blog posters are not going to ask permission for everything. You know, if you're using a very, very small piece but essentially adding your commentary, that can provide an exception to having to ask for permission. Because, again, a lot of what we're doing in terms of retweeting or reblogging, um, there are ways around the permission as long as you are giving the right attribution. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I would have to imagine, Nina, that with the rise uh, in popularity and effectiveness of these different social medium, uh, social media uh, type of uh, channels, that people agreeing to allow you to link or post something is fairly common nowadays. Yes, and if you're going to be someone who's putting something on the internet, again, because it's so few small business owners have the war chest to police all of these things. Um, you want to think very carefully about if somebody were to take it, 
do you feel okay with it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, not, and I'm not just saying take it and mis- you know, put it uh, over as their own, but if they, they take it and they're giving you attribution, are you comfortable with that? And I think within our social media world, as long as, hey, I'm getting the publicity, fine, go ahead, use some of these things. That's Where right. people run into problems is when, same thing like plagiarizing your, uh, your term papers in school, when you're taking large swaths of text or graphics that other people have created and you pass them off as your own, that's where it becomes an issue. Yeah. And that's where small business owners can protect themselves by uh, occasionally filing for their copyrights uh, with the U.S. Copyright Office. Well, that just seems so important as well, particularly if you're building your business as an asset. Part of your the way in which you deliver your product and services and some of the things that are proprietary, that becomes part of your business concept and can be part of your business assets. So why sure. wouldn't you want to do that? Exactly. But to the extent that you have a, a proprietary software or way of doing things or uh, something that you hand out, you really may want to think twice about posting that on the internet. Right, because uh, you're exposed is what you're saying. Yes, yes, from, from two positions. I mean, first, uh, you're exposed in, in terms of the possibility somebody could take it, um, but also, as I say, you, you run the risk of possibly devaluing that asset. Right. Uh, but there's another piece to it in terms of using contracts and things that you see on the Internet, which is a, a separate issue. Again, because it's free and it's readily available, we like to think, oh, you know, I've, I can take it, I can use it, and I don't have to think about the content. So the also problem t- with that for small business owners is that you could pull off a contract that you know, looks okay, but if you're not trained to know what, should be in it that's not, or whether what's in it can hurt you, then you end up using something that doesn't fit. Now, that's a good question because there certainly are a lot of templates mm. available on the internet now. And knowing what is legally binding, what isn't, when you should involve um, legal counsel or, you know, is a decision to make. And certainly a lot of small business owners, uh, particularly getting started, are really trying to control their costs sure. and, you know, want to save in legal fees and Absolutely. so are apt to look to do that. What mm-hmm. kind of advice can you give them? Well, what I might suggest is that when you're looking to take a contract from the Internet, treat it as an educational experience. I mean, first of all, you're going to have a, a wide variety of contracts to take. So look at them in a way in order to educate yourself about the kinds of issues you may want your contract to cover or the kind of relationship you may want with your client. Then that makes you really a more educated client when it comes time to going to an attorney to say, all right, I've put this together, but please look at this to make sure that uh, I'm bound where, or my client's going to be bound where I want her to be bound, and I'm not where I don't want to be, and that I haven't thrown anything in here that, that's a total mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I've, I've had, within the classes I've taught, uh, students who have raised their hands and said, well, you know, I got into trouble because I downloaded something from the Internet, and it said, uh, if there are any disputes, we'll resolve them in Denver, Colorado, and the students in New York City. Well, <laughs> That's a problem. Guess, guess where you're going if you're using that contract and all of a sudden the client doesn't pay. Okay, so if I hear you correctly, the advice is to certainly use the tools on the Internet to educate yourself, to understand 
what you may, uh, what type of agreements you may want to mm-hmm. make, what you're willing to do, what not being willing to do, and then still seek some type of legal counsel to make sure that you've thought of everything and that, in fact, um, you, you've you know put yourself in a secure place. Absolutely, and I, I think for small business owners. They're, they're so used to either doing things on a shoestring or feeling I have to do everything myself. Uh, and it's actually a point that, that I learned from the e-myth, which I continue to use as a teaching tool. Um, it's so important to have a team of outside eyes mm-hmm. helping you see your business and grow your business because um, there's just too much for any one person to be able to know. And uh, that's especially applicable in the area of legal work most people were not trained as attorneys. Now, are you also, you know, one of the common type of agreements that use just for discussion purposes are things like non-disclosure agreements Mm -hmm. that are fairly common out there. And and we always applaud the business owners who think of that in advance, at least if nothing else, to communicate the spirit of the conversation and sharing of information uh, moving forward. Is that something that also needs to have some type of legal uh, review? I, I think so, because you want to be very careful that the document properly describes what, what confidential information is, particularly for your case. Uh, you also want to make sure, and I've seen some confidentiality agreements out there, that, that there are teeth to it. Uh, very often I'll see agreements that say, this is confidential information and you won't use it. Mm-hmm. Well, what if somebody goes ahead and does it anyway? Right. Very often those documents are silent. So you need to make sure that there's some kind of penalty that's set out up front uh, so that people are aware of it. Because otherwise then you can become embroiled in a, in a more complicated lawsuit. Okay, so that actually brings up a a nice distinction because sometimes there are things, some documentation you may use more as a communication tool, and then there is other type of documentation that you want to make sure is more contractual or legal, legally uh, binding, if you mm-hmm. will. So, for example, uh, we use uh, one of the tools and one of the things we've recommended for years is have our small business clients create what we call position agreements. In fact, years past, we called them position contracts. Mm-hmm. And they were intended to communicate uh, really what the results of each position and that it's an agreement between manager and reporting employee in terms of what tasks, what work, and what results were. A lot of people have said, well, is this legally binding? Meaning if an employee does not, you know, accomplish these things, is this, you know, somehow could I pursue this in some way? What's your reaction to that? Um, My reaction to that is, is I agree, there's sort of along the spectrum, there are some things that are just hard and fast, do not mess with this without an attorney. Uh, and there are other things that can be a little more open. When you talk about, though, setting expectations with employees, um, and again, as I said to you earlier, I'm a trained pessimist. <laughs> so, uh, so I see all the different ways in which things could go wrong. And again, that can be financially disastrous for, for a company. Uh, where small business owners can uh, economize, especially when using their attorneys, is yeah, absolutely, put together the position statement, but you may want to have a disclaimer in there that says this may be changed. 
depending on the needs of the company, or other language that gives you, the employer, the opportunity to, to shift and change the position if that's what needs to happen for the business over time. Because okay, you, you don't want anything out there that says, all right, you're locked into this for forever and ever. But clearly, I think position contracts, if you will, can be a very helpful way to set expectations for employees uh, and also a very helpful human resources tool for evaluating whether or not it's worth keeping somebody on staff. That's a great, great uh, feedback. So, Nina, let's go to question number two. So, again, this is uh, the top three questions small business owners ask you. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, so I'm going into business with a couple of friends, and we know each other well. Why do we need a partnership agreement? Oh, just put a stake through my heart. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because when you're starting, I think a couple of reasons. First, you need a partnership agreement because – you're starting a business together and it's good business practice to have these agreements in place if you have any desire to grow the business to the point where maybe you sell it to somebody else anyone looking at your business is going to want to make sure that these arrangements are very clearly spelled out because otherwise it's potential litigation and that can devalue the the value of the business and what you can get for it in terms of a sale price. But perhaps the more important reason for needing a partnership agreement is that when you go into business with friends or with family, you bring a very special asset to the table, and that's your personal relationship, mm-hmm. which has to be protected at all costs. I mean, that, that's your primary relationship as people. Um, so when you, there's a tendency when we know friends well to assume we can read their minds or we know what's going on inside of them or we know how they're going to respond in a particular way. But just because, uh, I mean, I, I adore my husband. Uh, I really do. But I don't know that we'd really be the best business partners. Well, and, and that's a good example, Nina. So I think that is actually something that comes up quite a bit. I think this is an area that most uh, friends that have gone into business with, with one another or family businesses, mm-hmm. they tend to shy away from it because, well, what does it mean that you'd ask me? Similar right. to like a prenuptial agreement. Mm-hmm. So it really doesn't happen very often. And in fact, uh, you know, thinking back in terms of our small business clients, I mean, many, many of them are in family businesses or have partners because they're very leveraged in many ways. But most of them do not have anything formally agreed to in place and just assume it'll either all work out or we'll take care of each other in the right way at the right time because our values are the same. Sure. And in a way, it is counterintuitive to say, well, because we know each other well, I have to be more vigilant. I have to paper this with more documents and legal fees. Um, but as I say, you're bringing more to the table. There is that personal relationship that needs to be protected. And particularly in family businesses, it's very important to make sure that uh, if you're bringing in one child and not another, for example, uh, that the estate planning ramifications of that are discussed so that um, you know, one doesn't feel left out or the other child doesn't feel that there's a, a particular demand that he or she can make on the business that may not be appropriate. Well, that also brings up another, you know, scenario that... Talk about hornet's nests, right? Yeah, well, they are, <laughs> but they're important things to think about. You know, also, you know, in the case, so, you know, two friends go into business together, something happens to one of the friends. Unfortunately, um, there's an accident. Mm-hmm. So 
what happens then in terms of, you know, state law and maybe it's federal, maybe it's state, it varies just like divorce varies, you know, sure. in terms of, you know, who, uh, you know, then is responsible um, for that part of the business. You know, what is the exit strategy? How, do, you know, who takes over, who owns it? There's a number of things I can imagine that are unplanned that could blow up the business. Absolutely. And it, it can be all sorts of things other than, I can't stand your face anymore, and I want to wrap my hands around your throat. <laughs> um, that? As, as you identify, there's uh, not only you get hit by the bus and you die, but you get hit by the bus and you're paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that mean in terms of your ability to continue as a business? Um, there can be happy events. You know, surprise, I'm 52 and pregnant with twins. Hmm, wasn't planning that, but um, it means that you may not have the same amount of time to devote to the business that you used to. And part of where having a partnership agreement is important and having those discussions is important is that it just sets your expectations. When everybody's happy and there are smiles all around, it's a lot easier to agree to what's fair. But when you're in a situation where one or the other needs to leave the business, you have emotional tension, you have senses of frustration and fear and despair. And when emotions are high, intelligence is low. Yes. So that's why it's very important to have a baseline so that at least there's, there's a cooler head. That is your partnership agreement that can prevail if you need to make changes. Well, and, you know, that really bodes well, too, about, you know, one of the ideas that we uh, preach, I suppose, quite a bit and have for many years is that the business is separate from the owner or owners, that mm-hmm. it is its own entity. And you need to treat it as such as opposed to, we're going to work together. It's going to be fun. Uh, you know, we've been friends for years. We um, are going to make a lot of money. We're, you know, get get to work for ourselves and um, not, you know, seeing it more as income as opposed to an asset in the long term and separate. So it right. feels as if if you were really looking at it as separate, um, and a separate asset, it's really a nice third party safe neutral ground in which to talk about the asset objectively, which is a great time to talk about exit strategy and values and what would happen just much like an insurance policy, mm-hmm. as opposed to having a valuation uh, occur, which is what happens most of the time at the point of transaction where there is a divorce or there has been a death or there's something that's happened and now you're spending a lot of money in courts going mm-hmm. through a long process as it, rather than spending and investing some upfront to protect the overall asset for both parties and put you know some sense of security in place for both as well. Yep, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think that having those discussions in advance means that you have that fair baseline uh, so that there's no question. If an, a, a trigger event occurs, you know, if A occurs, then B happens. And you multiply it by the valuation formula in C to get your buyout price, which is D. Yes. And, and that's it. Uh, you're not, as you mentioned, you're not going into court. You're not wrangling over both how much am I getting as well as the process for arriving at how much am I getting. Yes, which definitely devalues everything that you've worked so hard for in the long term. All right, this is great, Nina. So let me go to the last question. Um, This is a great one. So my clients are slow in paying. What can I do? These days, right? Everybody's paying on time. Everyone's concerned about money right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, there are 
two things that I think business owners need to look at. And the first is, is more proactive. Uh, and that's the question, have you chosen your clients wisely? Uh, in these days, it's very tempting to take on anything that breathes and just assume it's going to be a client because you're concerned about cash flow and you, you want to make sure that there's work in the pipeline. Uh, but as a very wise colleague of mine says, it's not a client until they pay you. <laughs> if they haven't paid you, it's pro bono work. So you want to make sure you're looking very carefully at who you're serving, how you're serving them, and are you clearly communicating your price and payment terms up front? Because it's a lot easier to, to train people from the beginning to understand what you need to do than it is to change horses midstream, if you will. So having a good documentation of fees and expectations as well as invoices and, and payments and such is a part of setting this up, I'd have to imagine. A absolutely. And I think it also goes to, when you, when you think about the business and building the business, um, what, are, um, what, what kind of plans, what kind of investigation have you done to make sure that you really are working with the right target market that you can serve properly. Because uh, one of the reasons that people don't pay is that they're unhappy with the product or service. So Good you want to make sure that you're fishing in the right waters, as it were. Okay. Is there anything one can do in terms of uh, just other, you know, prevention or even, you know, what is the point in which one would really want to pursue legal action or collections? Because I think part of what prevents uh, business owners from doing anything about it, you know, as a, you know, rather than, you know, just writing it off instead, mm -hmm. is that they're also trying to build their business. They're tied into a community. They don't want to be the business that's known for dealing with customers or vendors, you know, in a way that um, seems to be extreme or harsh. And so they'll tend to just take it. Yeah. Any thoughts about that? Absolutely. I think there are a couple of things business owners can do. And the first is to have and, and write down for themselves. I mean, this would be part of their, their operations manual or collections policy manual. What is your process for collections? Uh, what kinds of payment terms have you set up? And then what kind of follow-up are you making sure that you put into place on a regular basis? So if uh, you send out an invoice and it's due in 30 days, you're not waiting until day 64 to follow up and say, oh, gee, I didn't get your invoice. You're, you're making a call a week later, two weeks later, to That's say, right. just want to make sure you got the invoice. Um, you know, when can we expect payment? Uh, sometimes having the ability to accept credit cards means that it may be easier to get that money from, from clients. Yes, you may be paying a little bit in the transaction fees from the credit card uh, merchant processing fees, but um, the money will then be in your pocket. That's right, cash flow. Exactly. Now and that's a great those are great points because often these are frustrations that business owners have, but what they really need to do is take a look at their system and often it's lack of a system. So Absolutely. then when there isn't a pay a client doesn't pay, mm -hmm. there's still this feeling of surprise and then each time it's uncomfortable, there's uncertainty, no one wants to touch it. And again it's that avoidance thing that con you know, avoiding conflict. And so they just let it go. So it's mm -hmm. really about having a process, stating it up front, and then having it be part of the way you do business. And you're always looking to improve 
the way in which you help clients pay you on time. Sure. And another piece of it is to see whether or not there's someone other than you, the business owner, or the person who provided the service, who can be making those follow-up calls. Because, you know, Wendy, if I did legal work for you, and then now I personally have to go hound you, that's a really awkward uh, element now in our relationship. But if I have my bookkeeper making those calls, then somehow it feels more like, oh, just business, Mm -hmm. that the bookkeeper can uh, be the person who takes all that energy, if you will, and says, all right, it's just business. I'm the one calling to follow up on that, but you and I can keep our relationship as service provider to service recipient. Yes. Well, I like what you said, too, about making it easy for Mm -hmm. clients to be and customers to be able to pay you because they understand already. And certainly there has been a trend, particularly in the past year, that businesses have understood that their customers are also having cash flow issues and a lot of things with the economy that are, you know, are unprecedented, really, and making concessions, making it easy to make, you know, put payment plans in place Mm -hmm. in order that they can make sure that they not only win that business, but they're still getting uh, all of the revenue in, though they may be upfront agreeing to doing smaller payment plans over time. In right. that way, that's still a good agreement, and you still have a system, mm-hmm. it sounds like, from what you've described. Absolutely. And a way that uh, business owners can help themselves has to do with their invoicing. I remember when I first graduated law school, I worked for a firm that would send out bills that said, for professional services rendered, one line, $14,000. Wow. And then they would be absolutely mystified why the clients wouldn't want to pay. So sometimes it's very helpful to be able to provide a breakdown or to write up what it is you're doing in a way that doesn't just say uh, develop logo, but that conveys the value that the client is receiving. Absolutely. And that's what they're paying for. So it's not just the features of what you did, but the benefits as well. Well, Anita, I like what you're describing because it's not just about, you know, what to do that's enforceable by law. You know, that's not the value necessarily uh, or the only value of going to uh, an attorney to get some legal advice up front. It's really to help you see the entire big picture, see what you can set up proactively, see what you could set up as an offense and defense as well. Mm -hmm. But it's really seeing and working on your system as a whole and uh, doing it in an objective way, not just how to avoid court. It's more than that. Absolutely. And and you're right. To the extent that you have a system in place, it makes it a lot easier to follow. The the first time may be uncomfortable, but once you you know what your script is, or whether it's by email or telephone for following up, you just do the same thing every time. Yes. And then it isn't guesswork. And I think that may be part of what's uncomfortable for business owners is they haven't done it yet. They haven't developed that system. So it, it feels like this big, ponderous task, which yeah, to some extent it is. But once you've done it, then you know how to do it and you get more comfortable with it. It's all about communication and expectations, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, Nina, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank I you. understand that there is, you are offering a free copy of the Entrepreneur's Business Law Primer. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And what, and what is your website that they can uh, get that from? The website is greatbusinesslawresources.com 
forward slash bizlaw, B-I-Z-L-A-W. Terrific, Nina. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Why emeth your business? Emeth your business to build wealth. Emeth your business to spend more time with your family. Emeth your business to fulfill your dreams. When you create an emeth business, you've created an asset that does not rely on you. It's a systems-dependent, not people-dependent business. It's a business with a documented and repeatable, unique and proprietary way of doing business. We can help you make your business an emeth business. Visit us at emeth.com.